What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? We are here to answer that question for you. Maybe it's a question you've been walking around with for decades. My goodness, why would you want that burden? Let's get that question answered on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV today, uh, the best way to get in touch for you is going to be uh, via email, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kaminsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He will uh, shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can get your question answered on on today's program. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm very well. Do you think it's too early to start talking about Christmas? Let's talk about Christmas. Let's do that. We're going to lead off today with an email uh, about, uh, this is actually from Mary who says, why did the Holy Family have to stay in a stable? Well, according to the text, there was no room at the Holiday Inn. The Hyatt, <laughs> the Marriott, you know, they were all they were all sold out. Booked up. Yep. So that's what we have to go with. That's right. That's what the text says. Very, very clear. Another one here from Andrew. Uh, Dr. Anders, what is your favorite part of Christmas as a Catholic? It's a good question. Um, honestly, for me, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I love the liturgy. But the best, my favorite way of celebrating the holidays is to spend time with my family. Mm. So, and it's been that way since long before you were a Catholic. That's true. That's true. Nothing's changed there. Okay, very good. And uh, this one now from Elizabeth. Why do Catholics celebrate more than one day of Christmas? Because it's a really important feast, <laughs> and we like to celebrate it for a long time. I mean, there's, you know, the... The way liturgical feasts develop is is somewhat arbitrary. I mean, it's not like it's written in divine revelation that you must do it this way. But from the heart of the Christian faithful, our our joy in the incarnation uh, compels us to 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 give thanks. And it, this is an incredibly important feast. Uh, Easter also is a whole season, and so we we celebrate these two seminal events in the life of our Lord, His birth and His resurrection from the dead, which are you know, the bookends of our salvation mm -hmm. uh, by making them particularly important parts of the liturgical calendar. A lot of our uh, non-Catholic listeners uh, may not be aware that, that Christmas is actually a season. And God bless you. Yeah, thank in, you. It's in, a season in the of sneezing, faith. too. Well, there, there is that, yeah. yeah. So it's actually a season. That's right. It's a Christmas season. And how long does it go? You tell me, Tom, how long does it go? Uh, my understanding is the octave of Christmas it goes for eight days. That's what I believe is right. All right. Very good. Interesting question here now. This is from uh, James, an email that we received. If Genesis is considered a myth, 
to illustrate man's relationship to God, how does one interpret original sin? Was original sin an actual event or an allegory? And if an allegory, how might one explain the need for baptism to wash away original sin? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So let, let's be real clear the way we use our terms. First of all, if you refer to Genesis as a myth, uh, we're not saying that it's untrue. And a lot of times when people use the word myth, that's what they mean. They mean, oh, that's just a myth. Like, you don't have to take that seriously. But myth, the word myth can also be used with reference to a genre of literature, mm. right? Namely, archetypal stories about about human or natural origins uh, that are meant to orient people or a people group in the world morally, right? In that broader sense of myth, um, uh, doesn't necessarily involve uh, something being factually untrue. And I'm trying to think if I can come up with an analogy. Um, uh, sure. I mean, if you think about say, some of the heroic deeds of uh, maybe some of the founders or uh, great civil rights leaders from American history, mm -hmm. uh, we can talk about uh, those events taking on a kind of mythic significance in that they're impressed upon the consciousness of the nation and they form our moral imagination and our relationships. That, that's really what we mean by the word there. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm not aware that anywhere in magisterial literature that declares that Genesis is a myth in either one of those senses of the term, but biblical scholars often note the similarities between the genre of Genesis and the genre of what is obviously mythic literature from its surrounding cultures, in particular the epic of Gilgamesh from Babylonian culture, which probably predates Genesis, and, and there seems to be... Uh, some relationship between the two texts, possibly uh, direct literary influence, uh, maybe indirect literary influence, but but they're they're clearly speaking the same language and they're speaking to similar cultural audiences. So the use of that term is not inappropriate with respect to Genesis. Um, now the question you raise about original sin is a very good one, and in point of fact, this is the point that Pope Pius XII put his finger on in his famous encyclical Humani Generis that dealt not with the, the literary genre of Genesis, but its relationship to natural science, and in particular to the theory of Darwinian evolution. And what Pope Pius said was, whatever Catholic scholars and scientists do with the book of Genesis, and, and he sort of granted them wide leeway to, to go where the evidence leads, <laughs> he says, wherever you go, you have to keep in mind this, this preeminent truth of the doctrine of our redemption in Christ and the problem of original sin. So uh, the theories could abound about how you can reconcile original sin with different accounts of human origins, whether based on uh, the literary genre of the text or what, what science and anthropology might reveal. Um, and, and any different number of theories could be allowable to a Catholic, provided they preserve the uniqueness of our redemption in Christ from the curse of original sin. James, thank you so much uh, for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, I'd love to hear from you. Our address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to tackle a few emails on each of our uh, live programs, and then uh, once a month or so, we'll uh, jump into the mailbag, answer a whole passel of questions. Again, the address, ctc at email at ewtn. Dot com. Also a great way for those of you watching on TV today to get in touch with the program. Hey, we're taking your calls today. And if you have a question about Christmas, the Christmas season, Advent, or anything along those lines, or maybe you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. 
It's called Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. If you uh, are ready, let's go to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Kathy in Melbourne, Florida, listening on the great uh, longtime partner of ours, Divine Mercy Radio. Hey there, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Well, I was wondering, what is the Church's position on pets that die? I had an 11-year-old ask me. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, the, the Church, and for that matter, philosophy, confirm that to be alive in any respect is to be possessed of a soul. And so in Catholic philosophy, plants have souls, ants have souls, dogs and cats have souls, humans have souls. But only human souls are immortal. So the animal soul uh, uh, dies with the, with the animal. It disintegrates with the animal. It, it, uh, it no longer has any existence. And, and Christ became incarnate in the human nature. He assumed a human nature for the redemption of the human race. Um, he did not become incarnate in the nature of a dog or a cat or a horse or, or any other uh, irrational beast. And so there's no expectation that an animal can enjoy the glory of the beatific vision through sanctifying grace with the way a human can. Um, that being said, part of the promise of redemption is that God will renew the natural world. And so we look forward at the coming of Christ to, to a new heavens and a new earth inhabited by humans in new bodies, uh, resurrected and restored and glorified bodies. We don't know much about what will occur in that renewed physical world, uh, but I think one could speculate reasonably that it might very well include animals. Um, one of the reasons that God created a diverse universe of, of different species, of millions of different species, is that even even a, a million times a million species would not be enough glory and beauty to fully illustrate the glory and beauty and majesty of God. Amen. And so, uh, you know, if if this world in all of its manifold glory is a pale imitation of of the glory and beauty of God, how much more the next? How much more the next? Um, will that translate into the, the, the specific resurrection of your particular pet? I have no idea. Uh, you know, it's, it's, within, it's within the competence of God to do that. Okay. And I'll tell you something that my own father told me when I was a very small child and I lost a pet. He said, David, if, it's, if, if it were necessary to your happiness for God to resurrect that pet, then I'm sure he would. Oh. Kathy, is that helpful for you? Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are most welcome. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Looks like one line open, uh, two lines open right now, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, do shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Let's go to Sheila now in West Des Moines, Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio, uh, listening on their app there. Hey, Sheila, what's on your mind today? Hi, I um, have a question about a scripture verse in Luke. It's Luke chapter 17, and verses 34 through 37, and it's just one of those things that I kind of wonder about as a Catholic. I mean, I don't wonder. I know we don't get raptured, but, you know, I have conversations with Protestants who think that we do, and all the sources that I've looked at to try and figure out exactly what does that verse mean, you know, two will be in the field and one will be taken, and all of that. Sure, I can help you. 
So I appreciate the question. So there are, there are really just a couple passages of Scripture that our Protestant friends <clears throat> believe uh, conform to their view of the so-called rapture. Uh, they are mistaken. Um, l- let me give you a parallel text from the Gospel of Matthew that I think will illuminate Luke 17. Jesus writes in Matthew 24, verse 36 and following, or Jesus, Jesus doesn't write, but Jesus says, uh, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So the, the people who are taken away are those that are punished for their sins, and the earth is cleansed of their filth and wickedness. And the analogy to baptism that, that Peter draws in 1 Peter 3 says the flood of Noah is an allegory for Christian baptism that washes away the impurity from our souls. Hmm. Right? And so the way, the way dispensational Protestants, the way rapture Protestants read that text hmm. is that the righteous are taken away, spirited away in heaven for seven years while the Great Tribulation happens and are returned with Jesus for, for a third time at, at the second coming, at the third coming of Christ at the end of time. When the text actually says the exact opposite, that it is the wicked who will take, be taken away and the righteous who will be left behind. That's not the way, you know, that, that, uh, that fiction series that came out from Tim LaHaye and, yes. and Jerry Jenkins yes. called Left Behind mm-hmm. uh, purported to, uh, well, suggested that the righteous, that the believers would be taken away to heaven and the wicked left behind. The text says the exact opposite. The other text that you'll sometimes hear dispensationals cite is 1 Thessalonians 4.17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. All right, so they, they cling on to that business about being caught up into the clouds. They say, see, aha, yes, we're being raptured, see that? And they, they don't just read to the end of the verse, which says, and we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, that's not the position that the dispensationalists take. They think the being caught up in the clouds is uh, is for the seven period, the seven year period of tribulation on earth, at which time they'll be returned to earth uh, with Jesus to set up his uh, his messianic kingdom in Jerusalem. So Catholics don't deny that at the return, the final return of Christ at the end of time, that we'll be caught up in the air. That's what the text clearly says. Mm. That's not the Protestant doctrine of the Rapture, which has a much more elaborate eschatology that imagines all kinds of things like the restoration of the state of Israel, um, you know, the secret coming when he raptures true believers only to bring them back. Uh, you know, theories about the interpretation of Old Testament prophecy, all that plays into the Protestant doctrine um, in a way that is um, uh, extremely ad hoc and certainly not the Catholic belief. Might refer you, uh, Sheila, to our website, EWTN.com, EWTN.com. A lot of good information there on the rapture, as well as our partners uh, at Catholic Answers, their website, catholic.com. Sheila, thank you so much for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN, actually doing a bit of a Christmas show today, so if you have any questions related to Advent, the Christmas season, anything along those lines, or your regular questions, love to hear from you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to uh, Columbus now and talk with Joan, listening on the Blowtorch St. Gabriel Radio. Why do we call it the Blowtorch? Because it covers almost the entire state of Ohio. Fantastic signal. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind today? Hi. Hello, Dr. Anders. Hi. Um, In a situation where a young adult would say Catholics can't marry in the Church unless you agree you'll have children and you'll raise them Catholic, um, 
and they say the church is not taking into consideration the hardships that parents might face. The church is more concerned about keeping their numbers up. Um, with that in mind, and being careful that I don't come across as preachy, my question is what is a good explanation of Catholic teaching when it comes to children? Sure, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it's it's really this kind of—I've heard this charge before, of course, and it's important to keep in mind that the, the church's ethic on human sexuality uh, did not emerge in the modern period. It, it emerged in antiquity. It, it is as old as the church itself, and so this is the position that the church fathers took. You can find this in the second and third century. Uh, every time that you get a discussion of human sexuality in Christian antiquity, it, it, it falls along the very same lines that we have today. No contraception, no abortion, no sex outside of marriage— uh, indissolubility of Christian marriage, uh, the whole the whole panoply of Christian of Catholic doctrine is mm. there from the very beginning, and the the uh, the interesting thing is in the context of second century, third century, fourth century, late antiquity, the Catholic position was understood by their pagan contemporaries to not be pro life, but to be very pro death, to be anti life, and I'll explain why the pagans thought the Catholic position was anti life and not pro life. Because in the pagan world at that time, of course, the infant mortality rate was extremely high, and, uh, and the life expectancy was very low. And just to keep the population steady, not the Christian population, but the human population, just uh -huh. to keep the population of the Roman Empire static, not growing, but just static, you, you typically had to have women marrying extremely young at, you know, say, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, and they would need to bear as many children as they physically could— and each woman had to bear at least four kids just to keep the population steady Wow! because so few of them would survive, mm -hmm. right? Um, I was reading a biography of Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, and, you know, to the extent that anybody had health care in those days, you could imagine the emperor probably had pretty good health care. <laughs> and I, I think he had—I'm going to get this wrong, but he had, a, like, a significant number of siblings— I think only two of them survived infancy. Really? You know? And that's very common. I mean, you could read about British kings. Mm. Again, best, best health care and, and food resource you know, availability that you could have in that period of time, and, mm -hmm. and yet very few children would come to adulthood. And so in that environment, it's necessary to marry those girls off and get them pumping out babies. And, uh, and of course, girls in the Roman Empire were not regarded as sovereign individuals, but as property of fathers and husbands. Along comes the Christian church. What does the Christian church say? Um... First of all, women can't be forced to marry against their will, and any forced marriage is invalid, and, and it is perfectly legitimate. In fact, it's preferable for women not to marry but to pledge their virginity to Christ. And uh, in a population that could not afford to let anyone miss out on the opportunity to procreate, mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic Church actually said procreation is, um, is, the, is the lesser of two options. It's a good, but it's the lesser of two goods. So St. Jerome, who was a particularly big fan of virginity, said uh, marriage brings forth children for this earth, but virginity for the next life. Right? That, was the, that was the Christian sentiment. Wow. And so the pagans looked at the Christian position and said, y you guys are destroying the population with all this advocacy of, of, uh, of virginity, and for that matter, continence and celibacy. Another thing that Christians taught was that men should be held to the same standards of chastity and modesty that women were. Again, that was to totally unheard of. Mm -hmm. The pagan position was that women had to be faithful to their husbands, but men could do whatever they darn well pleased. And the Christian church said, no, actually, men have to be continent and faithful to their wives. Uh, that also would reduce the numbers, because you know something about how populations grow, and 
you know, how how many children a man can potentially have in a lifetime versus women. Uh, you oh. know, the, if you restrict a man to one woman, it has a dampening effect on the growth of the population. Sure. So the the Catholic ethic was very uh, was very anti population growth in that sense. Um, contraception in the ancient world was a horrific affair, and it would be unseemly to describe on the air in mixed company the kind of techniques that were used to prevent pregnancy. But let us say that they were not at all good for the female body. They were not at all good for the female body. Um, abortions also were not at all good to the female body. And they're bad for female bodies now. They were horrifically bad then. Um, and, uh, and when the Catholic Church said, you cannot abort your children and you cannot practice contraception, the women were the first people in line to sign up for becoming Catholic because they said, finally, somebody regards our bodies with dignity and respect, and we're not forced to undergo these horrible, awful procedures that often end in our death or, or dismemberment. Um, and moreover, we don't have to marry against our will. So it's a very, very different social context, and yet the very same ethical teaching. But given the rationale here is the dignity of the human person, the dignity of women, the dignity of children, um, uh, the sexual integrity of men, that uh, was radical. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was um, iconoclastic. It was against the social norms. Um, but those very same teachings today are regarded as as reactionary and conservative and anti-women. Uh, but I think the antiquity of the teaching, and you see in its social context what it meant, just belies the charge that the church's motive is cynically somehow to boost its numbers. Joan, a great question for you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much for it. I'm glad that uh, Dr. Anders could unpack that for you today here on Call to Communion on EWTN. Let's quickly go now to uh, Rick in Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Rick, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'm surprised at how pertinent this stupid question is going to be, but I, I don't know if you get it from the screeners, but uh, the reason this question is answered is, you know, I can only ask one question a month. And uh, it's kind of been referring to uh, Pope Francis's bemoaning of neo-Gnosticism in, I guess, society or discussion, or maybe even the Church. We both know that Gnosticism both breaks both ways. you got the Nicolaitans on the one hand and the Manichaeans on the other. So this, that's the basis of this question. The question is simply this. Is it not the case that Mary was not holy because she was a virgin, but that she was a virgin because she was holy? Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I understand the distinction that you're drawing. So virginity does not make you holy. It's possible to be a virgin and to be a sinner. Um, a holiness requires you to live your vocation, your state of life, with charity. Mm-hmm. Some, for some people, that vocation is, chast is, uh, is celibacy and chastity. For some people, that's marriage. Um, in the case of the Blessed Virgin Mary, it happened to be both of them, right? So because she was holy, she was able to live her vocation of virginal mother with utmost purity and charity. Uh, but someone else could be holy and live the vocation of, of marital life and normal marital relationships. Another person is going to live the holiness in consecrated virginity. All right. 
And uh, Rick, thanks so much uh, for your call today. We have uh, sold out phones today, so I'm not going to give you that phone number, but let me uh, to, to tell you what's coming up. We're going to be talking with Ty, a first-time caller in Lincoln, Nebraska. Also, Nikki, a first-time caller in Mesquite, Texas. Also, uh, Luana. Rita is a first-time caller in New Jersey. We also have a question from Matthew in the UK watching us on YouTube today. And uh, maybe there will be a line opening up for you as well later on in the hour. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Do stay with us. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN. We actually do have one line open up. How about that? 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Matthew watching us in the UK today via YouTube. Matthew says, hello, my non-Catholic wife continues to struggle with the church's hard stance on sexual sin. It is difficult to explain how other commandments, like lying, are more easily seen as white lies or smaller matters, even if God is the God of all truth and any lie offends him. So why is it then that most commentators stress all sexual sin is grave when other sins, just as central to God, can be lesser. She sees uh, an inconsistency that I can't explain satisfactorily. Please note she does not dispute church authority or the modern culture, just this inconsistency. Any help would be appreciated. Thanks. That's again from Matthew in the UK. Yeah, thanks. So some of this, I think, is an inheritance from American Puritanism Hmm. and not from Catholic moral theology per se. Really? Right? Yeah. And if you talk to Catholics, devout Catholics, Orthodox Catholics, conservative Catholics, faithful Catholics from other countries, uh, they'll tell you that one of the things that strikes them as odd about the American Catholic experience is the stress in the confessional that's placed on sexual sin to the exclusion of other sins. Hmm. And uh, I've got a, a pretty hard right French Catholic friend, uh, you know, who's not he's not giving anything away on the Church's sexual ethic, but when I've spoken to him about this question— uh, he said, you know, growing up in France, he would be much more likely to uh, to have pressed upon him considerations of social justice. Um, you know, uh, was he paying his workers fairly? Really? Yes. Was he was he honest in his business dealings? Uh, you know, was he reg- taking care f- for the poor? These kinds of things. It's not like the sexual sins weren't there. They were mentioned. They were yeah. acknowledged yeah. as real. But there was an, an emphasis on practical charity. Uh, and and justice and social relations that would have sort of predominated in his in his uh, in his uh, mentality and and in his relationship with the clergy and catechesis and mm. so forth. Um, so, uh, what I'm getting ready to say, uh, you need to take this with a grain of salt and put it in context. Okay, Saint Thomas Aquinas is of course regarded as kind of the doctor of chastity, and there's something called the Angelic Warfare Confraternity which is a group of people who pledge themselves to chastity under the patronage of St. Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. because there's a, a story from Thomas's life that when he was discerning religious life that he prayed for the gift of continence and he had a vision of an angel that gird him with this kind of belt of chastity and that he never had a temptation against chastity from that moment forward in his life. So he was definitely committed. And, and you know, he, he died a virgin and he died you know, an utterly chaste person in mind and body, mm. right? So don't take anything away from Thomas's chastity. Uh, okay. Um, 
But in discussing a matter of public policy, uh, Thomas famously argued for the legality of prostitution. Now, he was not in favor of prostitution. Okay. Right? He thought that was a bad thing. Uh, but he thought that you can't prescribe every sin. You can't pass a law against every sin because some, you know, when you're dealing with people who don't live in the state of grace, you have to make prudential judgments about what you can push on them and what you can't because sometimes you might push too hard and you get a worse result. And so as a kind of concession to human weakness, Thomas said, well, this is an evil, but it's an evil we might have to live with. That was kind of the context. Very few Catholic theologians would take that position today. Like they would say, no, it's, you need to absolutely prescribe. It needs to be illegal. It's totally wrong. My point is that the, the, from, a, from a policy point of view, the way uh, Catholic moral thinkers have approached uh, you know, concrete moral decision-making in particular contexts uh, can vary somewhat in, in historical circumstance and, and, and other things of that sort and psychology and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, so some of what you're experiencing may just be a function of, uh, of the American Catholic experience. Uh, when it comes to the question of moral theology, you can't say that you can't just rank sins and, and, and order them in, uh, in terms of gravity because the objective act is something that contributes to the gravity of the act, but so does the intention and so does the context. The circumstances also affect the morality of the act. That's true for any sin. And so there is a context in, when, in which, say, uh, bearing false witness would be a much graver sin than, say, lust. And let me give you an example. Uh, let's say you have to give witness in a capital case. And based on your testimony, somebody's life might be at stake. And you bear false witness. Not out of lust, but for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Well, that would be an incredibly grave sin. The circumstances of the act would be an aggravating factor, yeah. right? Versus, you know, uh, uh, you know, some 13-year-old guy in his algebra class looking at the girl in front of him, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, he needs to keep his eyes to himself, but it's, th th there's, there's clearly no, it's not commensurate in terms of gravity. And so I, I don't think you can do the calculus this way consistently and say that every sexual sin is always worse than every other kind of sin. That's just not true. That's not, that's not good logic. It's not good reason. It's not true to Catholic moral theology, and it's certainly not true to history of Catholic experience. Now, when we talk about the gravity of sexual sin, you know, sometimes people want to mitigate the gravity of sexual sin, and they're not talking about the 13-year-old in algebra class. They're really talking about gross violations of human dignity. You know, we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, adultery and fornication and pornography and prostitution and things that are really, really demeaning to the human person. And there the gravity of the sin really is related to the, the, the sacredness of the persons that are involved. And there's nothing like uh, sexual immorality for devaluing the person and leading to wrecked lives. So you, you can't separate the act from the consequences that it will—I mean, we're not consequentialists, but you, you look at when you instrumentalize the human person in this way mm -hmm. and treat them as an object for your own gratification, uh, the damage to the human soul can really be incalculable. Can't even imagine. Wow. Matthew, we hope that's helpful for you and for your wife as well. Thanks so much for watching us in the UK today on YouTube. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Ty, a first-time caller in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, watching us also on YouTube today. Hey there, Ty. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon, gentlemen. My question is, how are we to understand graven images, and what do you say to the charge from Protestants 
that Catholics are guilty of idolatry for having statues of Jesus and the saints. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I would encourage such people, such people to read the, the biblical law, um, ordering the construction of the tabernacle, and then again Solomon's temple. And if you, if you read that law that God laid down for Moses and then for Solomon, uh, you'll find that the Israelite place of worship where they offered sacrifice to all holy God was replete with images of, of creatures. Replete. And, and, of course, famously, the Ark of the Covenant itself was covered by images of cherubim, winged creatures with their wings outstretched over the, over the mercy seat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, there were curtains embroidered with imagery. Uh, there were statues. Uh, there were paintings. There was embroidery of, uh, of, of fictitious animals, of real animals, um, of angels, uh, even of pomegranates. Wow, you know, I don't like you know. God seems to like pomegranates uh, in, in in religious architecture, religious uh, decor, and so uh, I don't see how anybody can read the Bible and walk away with the idea that it is illegitimate to make use of religious imagery in Christian worship. I mean, that's just not consistent with the Bible, which actually mandates that you do just that. the The event of the incarnation even more so changes the dynamic. And this is, this is what the Seventh Ecumenical Council was all about after the iconoclastic controversy, that um, because Jesus Christ assumed, because the second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature, um, that, I mean, that, that human nature becomes visible, tangible, tactile, oh. auditory. Uh, I can interact with it uh, sensibly. Now, if there's an argument against depicting the divinity it would be because the divinity is ineffable. But the humanity of Christ is not ineffable. I mean, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. That's what John writes, right? That, that it's, it's precisely his, his ability to be sensed, touched, uh, felt, smelt, encountered as a tangible material object uh, that makes the incarnation so significant. And so uh, uh, the... Um, uh, the icons and the use of icons is keyed very much to this realization that the incarnate Lord is incarnate and, and, and entered into space and time with us. If I can't depict it, then I'm, I make it something other than a human nature, mm. right? And so we really glory in our ability to depict Christ in his integral humanity. Now, to the charge that we, that we worship objects of this sort, we, we clearly don't. We clearly don't worship them. Uh, we venerate them. And, you know, I, I don't think it's significantly different from—it's maybe different in, in, um, in, qu- in quantity, but not qualitatively different from, uh, you know, the kid who puts, uh, you know, a poster of his, famous, of his favorite sports star or, uh, or musician up on his wall when, he, when he's 13 years old. I'm going to make a little revelation here. When I was 13 years old, I had a poster of Eddie Van Halen on my wall. Wow. Because I, I aspired to be able to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen. Um, How's that working for you, by the way? Well, the fact that I'm sitting here with you, Tom Price, is pretty good evidence that I never acquired the ability to play guitar the way Eddie Got Van Halen it. did. Got right? it. But that was, you know, and I, I uh, probably somewhat imprudently venerated the, um, the example, if not, you know, sure. of, of, uh, of Eddie Van Halen. And, and looking up at his poster reminded me of my aspiration, and I would pull out my Kramer guitar and, and start jamming and, you know, all the rest of it. And that's what we do with images of the saints, because 
while aspiring to be Eddie Van Halen might have been somewhat beneath my dignity, aspiring to the likes of St. Augustine or St. Thomas or Mother Teresa or, or even the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's highly, that's, that's, that's infinitely appropriate to the human aspiration. Sure, sure. What about this modifier word, graven? Is that a factor in any of this? No, not for, I mean, Solomon had to make graven images. Uh, Moses commanded making graven images for use in Israelite worship. Mm-hmm. They just didn't offer sacrifice to them. Okay. And, uh, you know, I we don't offer sacrifices to images of the saints. And nope, nope. For that matter, I, I never even offered a sacrifice to the image of Eddie Van Halen. Well, there you go. Ty, is that helpful for you? Yeah, thanks so much for what you do, and I love a good pomegranate, too. Yep, well, there you, you go. Ty, thanks so much uh, for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. If you want to hear some timeless teaching, you can't do any better than Mother Angelica Live Classics, which we bring to you Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television, where you can hear our foundress, Mother Angelica, sharing her timeless wit and wisdom Love these shows. They are fantastic. Again, Tuesday evenings, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. We also encore each of those shows several times over the weekend. Here now, Nikki. Let's see. Nikki is a first-time caller in Mesquite, Texas, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio app. Hey, Nikki, what's on your mind today? Hey, um, hope you're doing well. Hey, um, I'm dating uh, my boyfriend, and he's Catholic, and I'm currently going through RCIA and everything, and he had mentioned that he doesn't open Christmas presents on Christmas, so I needed to let my family know. But I was wondering, is that something common that Catholics do, or is that just him? So, I appreciate the question. Um, I'm Catholic. Uh, the problem I have in my house is that uh, typically my wife starts giving out the Christmas presents like a week in advance. Ooh. I mean, she keeps trying to break them open. She's so anxious to give them out, and so I, I, we would never last. We would never last if we had to wait till the day after Christmas. Absolutely not. Is she a box shaker? Does she like to shake the box? And oh, she doesn't like to get gifts. She's a gift giver. Gotcha. It's all about it's all about getting something and putting it in somebody else's hands, and then she's dying with anxiety until they've opened it. That is so cool. Nikki, thank you so much uh, for your call today. Here's Jamie now, a first-time caller in North Carolina, watching us on YouTube as well. Jamie, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I'm currently an RCIA student, and um, the more that I dig into what's happening in Vatican, the more that I'm worried about outside unwarranted influences in the Church, especially considering with what happened to Bishop Strickland, for example. I look back at things like the Quo Primum. I look at um, the Nostra Aetate, and I just wonder, where is the Church heading, and um, are these things that new Catholics should be worried about? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, right. I, I, can, okay. I can speak to that. So, um, you know, the, the, the way you framed the question is a little bit different from the way you framed it to the call screener. That's okay, but I, I had actually sort of been getting my head together to answer the question slightly differently with an emphasis on the baptism of transsexuals and homosexuals. I think that was one of the concerns that you raised. And I, I wanted to p- draw your attention to an article um, uh, that just I just noticed today from uh, Monsignor Charles Pope, who is a friend of EWTN's sure and a yeah. frequent uh, 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 contributor, uh, on his blog from, uh, well, actually, it's a little bit older. It's from November 14th, but I just mm. found it today, on, uh, quote-unquote, trans baptisms, a pastor's response to the recent Vatican document, right? And, um, and uh, you know, Monsignor Pope is, uh, 
is nobody's idea of a radical liberal or no, a leftist, no, you know? No, no, no. And, uh, and the thing about church documents is you, you kind of have to speak church ease to know how to read them, right? And they're, they're written, you know, with, uh, with legal precision oftentimes. And so if you don't, if you don't know the vocabulary and the, and, the, and the form, you may misinterpret. And uh, uh, Monsignor Pope offers a, a, a strict interpretation of the letter of the document, that okay. came out from the Vatican on this and says, if you followed the church's instructions to the letter, he says it's almost inconceivable that anyone would ever be able to admit someone from one of these categories to baptism because there are so many accompanying qualifiers. Hmm. Like, you can do this if... And to actually hit all those qualifiers re- reduces the scope of its applicability to almost zero. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, for instance, it presumes... It presumes that someone who presents themselves for baptism um, has the intention of professing the Catholic faith in its entirety and living according to Catholic moral teaching, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, uh, clearly, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking a little bit off the cuff here because I'm, I, I haven't reread the document and I need to go into it a little bit more depth to say what I'm going to say, but clearly um, it's possible to, let's say, have a certain psychological orientation towards the world uh, that may have led you to make some ill-advised medical decisions in the past, right? Um, and to not be completely healed of either one of those conditions, and yet have the disposition to do God's will. And, you know, the, the, the barrier of entry to baptism is necessarily much lower than, say, the barriers of entry to, say, ordination, and baptism is the right that brings people into the life of the church, not the, 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 the sacrament that automatically perfects them for the beatific vision, mm. unless you happen to have the good fortune to die right after baptism. Yeah. Right? It, it, it puts you on the path, but the course of the Christian life presumes perfection and holiness through arduous asceticism and contemplative prayer and a life of good works. Right? Um, so just go read that document, get yourself contextualized. Um, uh, I don't want to say too much about recent ecclesial action against a particular American bishop, um, but I, I will, because the church itself hasn't said too much about it, right, uh, right. but I will say that the way that event has been spun in certain media outlets um, does not give voice to a lot of voices that need to be heard on that issue, right? And so if you, if you um, I don't want to say too much, I'm trying to be very cautious here, sure. but... Um, there are always two sides to every story. Oh, put yeah. it that way, okay? And uh, and to allow yourself to be caught up in in propaganda and an ideological narrative from either point of view yeah. is uh, is ill advised, right? And um, and uh, so I'll just I'll say what I say um, on the question of where is the church headed. Uh, you know, I, I I hesitate to speak for the Pope, right? Because he's the Pope; he'll speak for himself. But I have been a Francis observer for 10 years, and uh, I think that I have got an interpretation of Francis' pontificate based in the documents, um, and another interpretation of Francis' pontificate that's not contradictory, it's not incompatible with the one from the documents, um, but is different based on, let's say, his off-the-cuff statements given in airplane interviews and such contexts, okay? Sure. Let me speak to the one from the documents first, which, of course, is the authoritative one. That's the one that lays down law and sets policy and principle for the church. Um, from the very beginning, 
Pope Francis uh, signaled in his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, that the way we have been doing church in recent decades, or maybe even centuries, um, has has failed to reach many people with the truth of the gospel and has alienated others. And I think that's beyond question. I mean, when I look at, say, the Pew Research data on the number of people who leave the Catholic Church, and this has been a perennial concern of mine. I mean, I've studied this issue sociologically and personally and pastorally for years, and Mm -hmm. I'm very conscious. I mean, one of the most frequent calls we get on this show is, Dr. Anders, how can you help me get my brother, sister, mother, son, grandson, child, friend back in the Catholic Church? It's, It's an enormous problem. And most of those people who leave, if you survey them and say, why did you leave the Catholic Church? They'll say, well, I left the Catholic Church because my spiritual needs were not being met, which means that the Church is failing to transmit the patrimony of Catholic tradition and the deposit of faith and the riches of the sacraments and our spiritual traditions in a way that those people can assimilate. If they could, they wouldn't have left. They wouldn't. They, their spiritual needs would have been met. Mm-hmm. Right? There are pastoral failures within the Catholic Church. That's evident. I've experienced them myself. Okay, I, I know this firsthand. Um, challenging Catholics to think creatively about apostolate so that they can find ways to get out of the status quo go to the margins, that is, to people that are not currently being served by the Church's pastoral ministry, and to reinvigorate those who are, strikes me as really good pastoral sense. Um, Some of the particular problems that Francis has harped on, uh, that he thinks are impeding apostolate, uh, two in particular, what he calls neo-Gnosticism and neo-Pelagianism, and in the current context, I think by neo-Gnosticism he means a way of approaching religion that thinks that if I hold the right system of ideas in my mind, then I've done what I need to do. I know that's a problem because I have been guilty of it. Mm. I mean, I grew up that way as a fundamentalist, thinking that my number one job as a Christian was to construe the world as accurately as possible based on a biblical worldview and then make sure I can impose that worldview on other people and defeat them rhetorically in debate. Right, that if I that my job as a Christian was to get other people to think like me because I had all the answers, and I have encountered that same spirit in circles of the Catholic faith. Uh, from where I sit now, at fifty-three years of old of age and having been Catholic for twenty years and having studied the Gospels and the life of Christ and the fathers of the Church, I now think that's misconstruing the goal of the Christian life, which is not about, you know, can I impose my worldview on other people. It is, can I myself come to see the other person as Christ sees him? Can I be transformed in charity so that I see the world through Jesus' eyes? And so I would agree with Pope Francis that neo-Gnosticism distorts the real message of the gospel, which is that I be transformed in love, not that I rhetorically defeat people in debate. Right? The other one is what he calls neo-Pelagianism, which is the belief that I can set up a, a system of religious activity be that liturgical, be that devotional, be that activist, wh- whatever your thing is in Catholic life, mm-hmm. and that I can equate doing my job as a Christian with with manifesting and recapitulating and perhaps propagating this, this system of religious behavior. And again, for the same reason that Gnosticism fails, that view of Christian life fails to address the fundamental need of the human person, which is transformation and charity. The best liturgy in the world— uh, the best, you know, uh, political activism in the world, uh, the most uh, rabid devotionalist in the world can be devoid of charity. Mm. Right. So I, um, I, I agree with those emphases of the Pope. I see it seems to me to be thoroughly biblical. 
And I think that is how I understand his, his pastoral ministry as he has expressed it in text. Um, when Francis speaks off the cuff in airplane interviews, um, you know, he has told us many times that he, he, he doesn't have the same concern for the precision of theological language that some of his predecessors have had. Mm-hmm. And I think he views that as a kind of uh, pedantic nitpicking. And so he's willing to speak spontaneously in ways that, uh, that, that have provoked, let us say, confusion in some people's minds. We all recognize this part of his personality and sure. part of his pontificate. Sure. But I read that in light of what I think his positive pastoral vision is that's been expressed in his encyclicals and his apostolic letters, and it's something that I think the Church should very much get on board with, first of all, because he's the Holy Father, and second of all, because I think he's right. Jamie, thanks so much for your call. Very glad that you're in the RCIA program. Uh, One final thing here. Stick with the sources that you trust. EWTN, National Catholic Register, Catholic News Agency, EWTNnews.com. You can't go wrong. You're going to get the straight straight word there. And I think we have time for one quick one here from Rita, a first-time caller in New Jersey. Rita, we have just about 30 seconds. What's on your mind today? Yes, hi. Um, my mother-in-law has been in the church for about 50 years now, but she does use profanity. Um, she uses a lot of cursing in her speech. And when I, when I ask her about it, when I try to correct her, she says that Jesus doesn't care that she curses, that there's worse things. And she's always, like, trying to justify the fact that she's cursing. Can you give a little... Sure. Uh, yeah, briefly, and I wish I could talk more about this. So so the, the, when we talk about cursing, that can include an awful lot of things, right? So it can include, you know, scatological talk, uh, sexually vulgar talk, blasphemous talk. They're not all the same. They're not the same. And, and clearly, talk that leads another person into sin or into, or into sacrilege... Uh, would be much worse than um, than other kind of talk, right? And so I, I really do think it's it's context dependent, somewhat culturally dependent, and at the end of the day, all of our language should be governed by the rule of charity. Very good. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. On behalf of everyone here at EWTN, especially those of you uh, watching on television today, a very Merry Christmas to all of you. We're looking forward to a great 2024 uh, to spend a lot of time with you answering these questions that you have on your mind. For all of us here at EWTN, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. We will see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day. Merry Christmas. God bless.